Hi, it's Anna, and I'm here to offer a disclaimer uh, slash warning. My computer became a victim of the supply chain difficulties we're all experiencing, and so I had to record the last couple episodes on my phone, or at least I tried to record on my phone. Uh, there were mixed results. I just want to tell you, this was not Karen's fault. None of the audio problems on these episodes are Karen's fault. They are all my fault. Please bear with us. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and the A2s were always a bit twitchy. I'm Dresner, Daniel Dresner. I work for the university, but don't let that fool you. I'm really an okay guy. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of offensive realism and relational frame theory. In the next few weeks, we will be talking about, finally, Dan, Dan, we're going to be talking about Villanueva's Dune, which uh, I saw a review of, ooh, but I okay. did not read the review. Yeah, I'm not reading any of the reviews. I don't want to be, I, 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 I confess, I don't want my expectations to be dashed. I want to be able to watch it clean. Oh, but I have such high expectations. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's for me, it's actually, I don't want them dashed prematurely. Right. That, that, that would be the better way yeah. of putting it. Yes, yes. Yeah. Speaking of expectations being dashed, we will also <laughs> be looking at Waterworld for our somewhat moribund schlock and awe series. We also need to get back to the Cannon Fodder series, Dan. Although yes, the Alien franchise almost qualifies in and of itself. But we, are, we want to look at even older stuff. And we're taking suggestions in that regard. We have one other movie planned, which is Event Horizon, a favorite of mine, a personal favorite of mine. Which uh, I have never seen. Also, <laughs> which I have seen like, oh God, probably half a dozen times. It's one of those yeah. things that plays used to play on basic cable all the time. It's right, right, right. Yes, movie. yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we have other ideas, but your schedule is always kind of loosey-goosey. If you want to give us your suggestions or suggest an order in which we might do our already existing suggestions, you can reach us via Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox, and I'm I'm going to say, Dan, I'm actually kind of back on Twitter. So. I noticed last night you were a little back on Twitter. Yeah. 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 I'm back on Twitter. So I might actually you. hear your suggestions and you shouldn't just tweet at Dan Dresner. We also have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, tell us more about this Patreon page. Well, you know, if you go to the Patreon page, one of the options there is you can choose to become a patron. And there are significant benefits to becoming a patron. You get swag, you get early access to the podcast episodes, you get access to our Discord channel, which contains a, a lively discussion in which Anna and I don't even need to participate. They are basically sustaining on, on their own. There are also our monthly AMAs. And finally, if we get to uh, more than 250 patrons, and we are more than halfway there, we will do a special patrons-only show with a topic chosen by the patrons. And our patrons have great taste. So I am excited for, for whatever they'll choose. Last time we did uh, 28 Days Later. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a we, had a, we had an interesting conversation about we that. Did. Oh, and, yes, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, it, it gets one of our more memorable episodes if people <laughs> haven't already heard it. I'm not going to say it's one of our best episodes, <laughs> but definitely more most lively. It's probably yeah. our most lively episode. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Dan, today we're talking about aliens. Not yes. alien, but aliens. Correct. Uh, why? Why choose this? Do you remember? I think I do, which is we both love Alien. You know, I think, you know, to you, it is the perfect uh, sci-fi horror movie. I have grown to love it over, over time. I love Aliens. So I confess this is one of my favorite all-time movies. And it also, I think, legitimately might be the most interesting sci-fi sequel ever made because it is good, 
but good in an entirely different way um, than Alien. Even though there is one character that survives both, it's just completely different. Maybe we'll do the latter two films as part of our Schlocker Awe series. I don't know, but uh, it's certainly one possibility. Anna, why do you want to do this? Well, Ellen Ripley Mm -hmm. is one of the best strong female characters in the history of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I would argue this is true throughout the franchise. The The quality of the films may vary, mm-hmm. but Ripley does not. Also, this film has a special place in my heart because it is peak heat-eating. Anna, I think you're absolutely right. This movie is, in fact, uh, peak heat-eating. <laughs> we'll talk about that more later. But if you've seen the movie, you probably already know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Anna, let us get to... The story behind the story, uh, and you know, once again, it's fun because at least it starts at least with Ridley Scott, or at least working within the uh, the shadow of Ridley Scott. Go. Yes, th- this is Ridley Scott adjacent. Right. It's sort of interesting to start out because although Alien was successful enough that people were interested in a sequel, the original studio thought that success was a fluke and was reluctant to make it. They thought that. Science fiction movies were doing really well, but horror wasn't. And so, th- yeah, they just they just didn't know if they wanted to do it. So it bounced around studios for a while. But James Cameron, the James Cameron, was attached to it fairly early on, even before Terminator, which he wrote the script for, was actually released. Because apparently the Terminator script went around Hollywood as one of those, everyone has to read this script, this is such a great script you know, things like a passed around. He was attached to it fairly early on, although Cameron, like me, considers Alien to be a perfect film. (laughs) So he didn't really jump on it. However, uh, he was enticed to do so by the idea that was suggested from the producers, three words, Ripley and Soldiers. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently Cameron is as big a fan of Sigourney Weaver and Ripley as I am. He had a picture of her on his desk as he wrote the movie. Also, he had an interesting framework for how we might think about the movie as compared to Alien, which I think kind of goes along with with how you think about these two movies, Dan, which is, he says, Alien is a haunted house movie and Aliens is a roller coaster. That is an entirely fair and, and in fact, perfect. It's, it's telling how good this movie is that in some ways it fits the metaphor perfectly. He, he did conceive of it and in that he actually managed to execute it well. Some other details from the story behind the story that I like is that Terminator was delayed in its filming because Schwarzenegger had to go do Conan the Barbarian. And while it was delayed, he developed the script a little more, including the power loader fight. Mm. The power loader fight came before anything else, which I feel like you can maybe kind of tell. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Sigourney Weaver was a key piece of the whole thing, but she, uh, you know, rightly knew that she was a key piece to the whole thing. And she held out for a while. She wound up negotiating for a million dollar salary plus a percentage $1 million, Anna? Well, and, you know. That was a lot of money <laughs> back then, yes. $1 million, yes. yes it's yes. about... Some, I, I read it's like 2.6 in today's terms. And maybe it just says something about how women are paid in Hollywood. That was considered extremely high at the time. It was the most that she had ever been paid. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important she negotiated for a piece of box office. Which, which is, is huge. Yes. Super smart of her. H.R. Geiger was not involved in the creatures 
uh, of this movie, which I think you can kind of tell, you know, like they don't have the same like weird, disgusting sexiness that the originals do. Mm -hmm. Although I will say Uh, Geiger, Geiger did praise Cameron for what he did do. Geiger thought, in other words, Geiger did not disapprove of the aliens that they were conceived here. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's sort of interesting. There was a lot of high hopes around this movie before it was released and it did wind up doing very well because the studio thought that the ladies might see it. (laughs) You know, horror typically is seen by men and studios know that, or at least that was the case at the time. I think the demographics have changed somewhat. Yeah. Um, But the hope was that women would come see Ripley. And what do you know? Women came to see Ripley. Mm -hmm. One other piece of trivia that I learned, which is that apparently the producer, Lawrence Gordon, as you pointed out, there were delays in terms of the script because Cameron had to deliver the script for and then direct Terminator, which meant there was going to be something to delay, like up, up to two years. And Lawrence Gordon, the producer, basically said, we will wait for Cameron on this because mm-hmm. he was sufficiently intrigued by the script that Cameron had already produced that he was willing to wait. And I would add, that, by the way, that it's not terribly surprising that Cameron worships Ripley because, you know, if you think of Cameron's entire oeuvre, you know, it... There's a lot of strong, badass women in them, you know. Oh, Sarah so, Connor seems like yeah. a, a Ripley. I, I won't call her a clone because no. she is her own character. Right. But definitely Sarah Connor comes from the same DNA. Right. It fits as, that type. Yes. Yeah. So, Dan, we've talked enough about the mm-hmm. story behind the story. Let's talk about the plot. All right. Let us start with Act One, The Long Nap. When we last saw Ellen Ripley, uh, she had blown the alien out of the Nostromo's escape pod's door and had gone to hypersleep. Hey, mission accomplished. Uh, She is discovered by a salvage team 57 years later. Side note here, I do love, I I watched this on Amazon Prime, and the description by Amazon of aliens was, Ripley is rescued by a salvage team. (laughs) Which is certainly an interesting description of it, given what happens after that. Um, You know what I liked about that particular sort of sequence is that uh, in, you know, fitting uh, aliens working class kind of, you know, milieu, the scavenger team um, says, there goes the scavenger. There goes the salvage. No, there goes our salvage operation. Yes, Yeah, there goes our salvage operation, right? Yes, it's perfect. Like they're they're going to keep her alive, but like they're bummed that they're missing out on the payroll. So she wakes up in a space station, apparently orbiting Earth, in a brilliant cut that Cameron makes. The company debriefs her, led by Carter Burke. They are not happy, however, with Ripley because their expensive freighter in the Nostromo was destroyed by her. Nor do they believe her story uh, about a human-killing alien. In no small part because the planet where they discovered the alien on LV-426 is now apparently being terraformed by a colony of 60 to 70 families, approximately 158 colonists. Stripped of her flight license, Ripley works on the docks and suffers for some pretty serious PTSD. Burke comes to visit with a Lieutenant Colonel Gorman and informs her that they've now lost contact with the settlement on LV-426. If she agrees to go on the mission to rescue them as an observer, Burke can get her flight status restored and have the company pick up her contract. Ripley immediately says no, but after another nightmare, changes her mind and agrees to go after Burke promises or implies that they are going to kill any aliens that they find. Anna, a very simple question. Is Paul Reiser the best sci-fi villain ever created? Because he is just so goddamn good and slimy in this. It is amazing. I, I, every time I watch this, I'm in awe of this performance. I want to talk about that, but first I have to say, mm-hmm. kitty. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> That's true because I pretty much the, the kitty exits after these the, the act one. So yes, go ahead. That is true, but you Jonesy, forgot to say Jonesy survived for fifty-seven years in hypersleep as well. I think it would be uh, safe to say that in the entire Alien franchise, Jonesy is the big winner. Yeah, Joe. Oh my my gosh, yes. yes. And I assume he's like going to some very like luxe, you know, cat refuge that Ripley has arranged for him. <laughs> I have this image uh, where he's like sitting in a little cat rocking chair, telling everyone the Alien story. <laughs> As far as Burke slash Paul Reiser, yes, he's amazing. And I think what makes him so deliciously bad is that mm-hmm. he's not incredibly obviously bad. I mean, he mm-hmm. is, but he's not twirling a mustache. No, he's know? not. And he's, like, and he, yeah, he's, he's, he's human. Right. He's transparently slimy. But yes, like you, you, you have anyone who has been alive in the 21st century and 20th century has met a corporate drone yes. like this guy. Yes. yes, exactly. And part of what makes him so evil is that he looks like us. Right. <laughs> you know? He walks and talks like a human, but actually yeah. is a blood-sucking vampire. And I, I want to point out, because I think it's subtle but cool, as you mm-hmm. said, he only implies they're going to kill the aliens. Because Ripley asked him to promise that, and he says, that's, that's the plan. The plan. <laughs> I also want to point out that this is the movie that, yes, we met the Wayland yutani company, the company in the mm-hmm. first movie. But this is the movie where, you know, the makers from here on out have decided to make that company a, a mythology, to have it mm-hmm. be a villain in and of itself. And they give it a backstory and they elaborate on it. And it, occur- it occurs throughout the franchise, even to the, you know, games that have been uh, spun off from the series. And I think it's interesting to me that that's a thread that that stayed in the whole franchise. And I think I might want to talk about that a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also, Dan, you also have seen the special edition of this film. I have indeed seen the special edition. Uh, I will just simply say no one else needs to see the special edition. I, unfortunately, I have also seen the special edition. Or not Sorry, Anna, I should have warned if you. If you really love this movie, it mm-hmm. might be interesting for you to see it. But it's also a testament, perhaps, to Cameron's economy as a director and yeah. realizing what actually needs to be in the movie, that none of the cutscenes are necessary. And some of them, in fact, I think, because there's more information, actually detract from the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the main one being, we understand that Ripley has a daughter who has died since yeah. she was in hypersleep. And also we, get some col- we meet some actual colonists, specifically we meet Mr. and Mrs. Newt. Uh, and I don't. And the brother, that, I think, yeah. And the brother, uh, yeah. and that adds nothing, just nothing. Nope. So, uh, moving on. Yeah. Let us proceed with Act Two. I don't think secure means what you think it means. So Ripley joins Burke and the Colonial Marines aboard the Sulaco after they wake up from their hypersleep around LV426. We get to know these troops, consisting of a very officious Lieutenant Gorman, the classic uh, Sergeant Apone, a strong but silent Corporal Hicks. We also get to meet a variety of privates, including the wise-ass Hudson, tough chick Vasquez, artificial person Bishop, uh, who makes Ripley super nervous for obvious reasons, if you have watched Alien, and all the rest, which I'm not going to name, but like we actually do get to know them, and they are legitimately individual and interesting characters. They take a dropship to the terraforming station. The Marines enter the facility and see signs of a battle, but do not see any actual colonists. They do find aliens in specimen jars uh, in the med bay, however. Then they find a small girl, Newt, who has somehow managed to survive on her own for three weeks. 
They locate the colonists beneath the colony's fusion power plant. The Marines go in, but most of them don't come out. They find the colonists are being used to gestate the aliens. Mature aliens start attacking the Marines. Gorman, clearly in over his head, freezes. Ripley takes charge and drives the APC to the plant in order to rescue the surviving Marines, which are now to only three, Hicks, Hudson, and Vasquez. Anna, when we talked about Alien, we both marveled at the sort of economy of character exposition, particularly in the opening scenes, like the first 10 minutes or so. I do think Cameron equaled that feat in the 15-minute sequence aboard the Sulaco, where we meet all the Marines. And we meet a lot of them, but they are all, again, are, are individual characters. Uh, would you agree? I like the Marines, although I have questions mm-hmm. about them. Uh, mainly, who do they work for, exactly? But... <laughs> But I'll just stick with your question. Yes, I think it's just so different. Yeah. The alien is, as we discussed, like Roger Altman-esque mm-hmm. in the way that it introduces us to the characters. They're, they're sort of presented to us almost in a documentary fashion. It's a very natural conversation. They talk over each other. We are listening in. Like it's, right. it's, it's very naturalistic. This is, you know, um, playing on some tropes. Let's say. I mean, on I a lo- no, it plays on a lot of tropes. I mean, yes. I, and, and I think the camera's doing this intentionally, yeah. I know. Yeah. But it, it isn't the same freshness that really Scott brought to Alien. Mm-hmm. It, it's recognizable as a movie, I guess I'm saying. You know, like this, oh, we're in this kind of movie. Yeah. Right. Which is fine. I want to say totally fine. Mm-hmm. But also makes a lot of sense when you know that Cameron made all of them read Starship Troopers before oh interesting okay so they knew they were in that kind of movie right Mm -hmm. he gave each marine a backstory Mm -hmm. uh, which really helped they all do have individual characters i like the detail that sigourney weaver gave all of them on the day they died she gave them flowers the day of their character death (laughs) (laughs) the day that paul reiser's character died she gave him dead flowers (laughs) which i love also they did train with veterans together Mm -hmm to carry the packs and the guns and whatnot. And, and that's, again, I think this is all to a purpose. Also, it's that kind of movie. The other- I would add right here, by the way, sorry, because it, uh, it it fits the thing. Apone, the, the actor who played Apone actually was a drill sergeant in Vietnam. So yeah. A couple other things, which is uh, Vasquez, not actually a Latina woman. She was literally in brown face. They gave her dark makeup as to be able to play this character probably wouldn't happen today Mm. i'm guessing and then another weird anachronism is that uh, hudson makes an illegal alien joke yeah dan where do you think he's referring to like what country do you think that he's he's implying that she's an illegal alien from like I, I actually think that, like, I don't know if it's anachronistic or if in the time frame of aliens, there is still a border between the United States and Mexico. Because one of the interesting things is, you know, when you see these colonial Marines, they are wearing U.S. flags. That's part on their, of the problem, by the way. Yeah, on their <laughs> on their uh, their uniform. So clearly the United States still exists and Mexico apparently is not part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, when I say, I mean, clearly they have United States flags on their uniforms, but they're also referred to as the colonial Marines. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, I don't, I mean, well, okay. I so I, I will, this, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the IR portion so we can, yeah. we can get to it there. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. And Dan, you have actually been around more military people than I have, although mm-hmm. I've been around enough to say, I think that the portrayal of how they speak to Sigourney Weaver is 
perhaps not accurate. Like when I've been a stranger mm-hmm. and a civilian in the context, I mean, I have been on a ship with them, yeah. but they're usually pretty polite. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the answer here, I think, is that this is a mild criticism, but I don't think it's a, a serious one. And, and here's why. If I mean, I just, it's just, it, it part of the story, I get that, but I guess right. I wanted to say that the behavior of the people in the military that I've seen, mm-hmm. they can be rough with each other. Right. Right. But this seemed like a little out of the box. So two questions for you. First, when you were interacting with, with troops, were you interacting with enlisted or with officers? Okay. That's a good point. Because these are enlisted. <laughs> that's, that's thing one but that you need to know. They're in but front of their officers though. They're in front of one officer. And as we will become very clear, yes, we don't right, really respect right. them all that much. Right. But the other thing is, is also this isn't a situation where they are in a civilian environment interacting with civilians. Yeah. This is clearly a military ship in which Ripley is the guest. And so I've been on carriers and subs and so on and so forth. I wouldn't say that they would they would be very polite toward me, but would I see talk that would be similar to this that wasn't addressed to me, but that was addressed to each other? Yeah, I would. And I would add, by the way, that that's also true in these scenes. The Marines don't insult Ripley. You know, I think Vasquez at one point says, just show me where to point the trigger. But beyond that, they are actually not insulting toward her at all. In fact, they're quite respectful toward her. So I actually found their behavior entirely appropriate. They diss each other. They don't diss Ripley. So maybe the reason I was sensitive to whether or not they were insulting Ripley is I do think that kind of the larger villain in this story is patriarchy. I mean, we'll talk about (laughs) capitalism, but, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I know Vasquez is a a really great character, Mm -hmm. um, but you know what, Dan, they don't listen to Ripley worth a fuck. Like, Mm -hmm. why did you bring her? Right. I mean, I've seen this movie a thousand times and I was screaming you know, at the screen, why are you not listening to Ripley? Like Mm. she makes every suggestion uh, that you possibly could, you know, to to make things turn out slightly better, perhaps, you know, but they ignore, they find a chest buster and they still like, don't particularly like take her seriously. No, they keep having to discover for themselves. They keep on having. Right. right. Oh, no, no. They find they see the chest busters in the med bay. Yeah. No, because like, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the, The point I would say is I think there's a clear break which is which we're about to talk about because I think between act two and act three, which is once it's just Hudson Hicks and Bishop Hicks, while nominally in command, clearly is listening to everything that Ripley says. And I think in other words, by that point, she has clearly earned their respect and, and, you know, is essentially treated with far more respect than their actual officer. Yes. And as speaking of being treated with respect and earning it, we do get introduced to Chekhov's power loader. (laughs) <laughs> that's true i omitted that i apologize i can't describe everything but yes the uh there is there is reference here to the power loader and again it, it speaks well to cameron's script that really you know your things things are there and you realize they wind up being relevant later okay all right moving on let's go to act three game over man assessing the situation ripley recommends that they nuke the site from orbit Burke says, whoa, lady, that's like totally speciesist. You want to destroy these aliens? Ripley points out that this is a military operation, leaving Hicks in command. He decides to, wait for it, nuke the site from orbit. He decides to nuke the site from orbit, Dan. <laughs> How dare you sheep eat me? Uh, I know. Anna. And that's just that. It is, it is presented as somewhat of a joke in the movie, yeah. so I'm not going to get mad about it. But it is... It's, it's a laugh line because it's funny because it's true. Yeah. 
And also it does stand in kind of the whole movie, right? right. Like, yeah, no, it does happen. Why yeah. don't you listen to Ripley? No, they have, to, they have to do all of the things that Ripley's done and then decide for themselves. Anyway, Hicks, our new hero. Hicks orders the dropship pilot to come recover the survivors, but oh, there's a stowaway alien aboard the dropship, which kills the pilots and crashes the dropship into the station. The survivors go inside the colony to barricade themselves. Ripley tells Bishop to destroy the alien specimens, but Bishop says that Burke told him to keep them. Ripley learns that it was in fact Burke who ordered the colonists to look for the derelict alien ship in the first place. Burke planned on getting the aliens through quarantine and apparently making a mint from the company's bioweapons lab. Ripley says that ain't happening. Bishop points out that the fusion reactor... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just want to say about Burke ordering the colonists to look for the uh, alien ship. They have an argument about it, and Mm -hmm. he does the worst counterfactual, like, in all history. (laughs) Do you remember this? Where he's like, look, Ripley, what if it hadn't been the alien ship? Then I would have looked kind of (laughs) ridiculous. No, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, it was also... But he also has like something of like, and then there's no one gets a percentage or whatever. I'm like, legally, yeah. I'm not sure how the hell you're getting a percentage, even if they did like safely find the alien. So like, it, right, right, part, right. It's like, yeah. but it, it's like, what if they didn't find the ship is like a bad kind of like thought experiment to do. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. as far as like taking responsibility goes. Yeah. So um, moving on. Moving on. Bishop points out that the fusion reactor is overloading and they only have four hours before everything goes kablooey. He volunteers to crawl to the colony antenna and pilot the second dropship to come down. Anna, I've watched this film many, many times, uh, probably as many times as you've watched Alien. And this time, the thing I was struck by was how well Cameron and Sigourney Weaver amp up Ripley's confidence and grit. Because for the first 75 minutes of this film, She's not entirely sure of herself. She obviously has PTSD from the experience on on uh, the Nostromo, but also like there's a couple like just small gestures she gives of like she's not used to speaking on the headset, or she's you know not sure when to speak up to talk to the lieutenant, or she stut- stumbles a little bit when she first tells the the Marines their story. Um, but at the same time, you know, she grows more sure of herself. Among other things, as you she sees more in witless incompetence by everyone else. And I think that's really well done. And the same thing I think is true of, of Ripley's maternal instincts with Newt, which also come out slowly. And in some ways, what this reminded me of weirdly was Die Hard. Uh, and the reason I say that is that Die Hard is structured and in action sense the same way in that, you know, John McClane, when he first realizes there's like a, a hostage takeover, is legitimately freaked out and unsure of what to do. And it is only as the movie builds that he sort of, you know, begins to be able to do the things that wind up making him like the superhero that you see by the end of the film. And so in that sense, that and this film, of course, precedes Die Hard, and therefore I think Die Hard borrowed from it. <laughs> mm. So a couple of observations. One is uh, John McClane's a lot of things, but he's not unsure of himself. Um, mm, he, okay. he, I, I would say, I mean, okay. the character of Bruce Willis, right? Yes, yeah. like, okay, fair enough. He, yeah. he, he's not shy. I mean, he may be freaked out. Yes. Rightly freaked out, but yes, eventually he becomes a superhuman. You know? Right. Eventually. And, but I'm saying there's a journey that for him. To and get I there. would say as far as Ripley goes, again, the real villain in this film is actually patriarchy. <laughs> um, I'm being totally serious because the way you could look at her character development, the way that you suggested, and I do see what you see, but also she's been gaslit, Dan. Yeah. That's her reality has been denied. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that she has experienced, she is literally told she's not believed. 
Right. All of the things that she wants to, to say and that she wants to do for the good of other humans, she is told that's a bad idea. We're not going to do it. And also we think you're, we literally think you're crazy, mm-hmm. right? One of the cut scenes actually does add a little bit, which is the scene where she is interrogated by the uh, Wyland yutani crew mm-hmm. is a little bit longer hmm. in the special edition. And they tell her, we, they'd say, we're going to order psychiatric evaluation for you once a week. So I think what this film shows is yes, she gains confidence, but it's also the way that her confidence was stolen from her. She had this terrible experience Mm -hmm. is that she's being gaslit and Mm -hmm. that her experience on the ship, like she's being told by all these men, we don't believe you. We're going to ignore your advice. We don't think that you know what you're doing. Right. So what this movie is in some ways is, her discovering her the strength in her maternal instincts. And that is when she starts to develop um, more strength as a character is after they discover Newt. Now, mm-hmm. I've never been a big fan of the Newt thing. <laughs> I feel like... Mm. <laughs> if memory I mean, serves, maybe, fandom is pretty split on Newt, actually. Yeah, yeah and, and it might be, you know, I don't have kids but you know i'm human (laughs) like i understand maternal instincts i have also have a dog it's always felt a little forced to me i mean sigourney weaver is an amazing actress Mm -hmm. so it doesn't interrupt the film in any way but i feel like it is a man who wrote this script like you are you are taking a shortcut to strength here and you are taking a shortcut through a very like culturally available thing rather than have her be strong, you know? Like, hmm. I, I mean, you, I, yeah, controversial opinion, perhaps. Okay, I mean, I, as a man, Anna, no, but um, yeah. let me put it this way. There is only, I guess I would say I particularly liked, one of the things that, that is legitimately great about this film is that it is a female action yeah. vehicle, and it's a female action vehicle in which, they didn't like originally go for Bruce Willis and then cast Sigourney Weaver. It had to be Sigourney Weaver. It had to be, it, it was, it's a, it's a gendered action hero in that it, it mm-hmm. did sort of had to be a woman, uh, have to be a woman. The, there is only one false note on that front where that I did think goes too far, which is the very end when Newt says mommy, that was the sledgehammer over the head. And I did not like that. I, I, I that's where I agree with you. Yes, that, that I, would not I think have happened. it's a little gender essentialist, basically. No, that might like, be the case. It, it, I, I don't deny that there is some gender essentialism. And it goes on to do more with that, as you know. Like the, the further you know, films in the franchise do that with yeah. the alien as being a, having a maternal instinct. Well, I think, so, again, with the alien queen, that's in this movie as well. But it's in it with a sufficiently light touch that I yeah. actually think it works. Is my point. Wait, 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 I'm saying a little gender essentialism is not the worst thing <laughs> in the world, I guess would be the way I would put it. Let us move on to act four, the greatest 45 minutes of action in a sci-fi movie. Ripley goes to catch some shut-eye with Newt, but wakes up realizing their alien face huggers locked in the room with them. And boy, oh boy, do they want to hug. Uh, she triggers the fire alarm to get help. They are rescued and Ripley realizes that Burke was trying to have the aliens impregnate them as yet another way to smuggle them back to Earth through quarantine. Just as they are about to waste Burke, all hell breaks loose. Now, I'm going to describe it, but I want to stipulate here and now that it is impossible for my words to do justice to the last 45 minutes of this film. The aliens are inside the compound. Uh, they can't figure out how and then, you know, realize that they are crawling above the ceiling. Burke runs away uh, and locks the door behind him and is then killed by an alien. 
Hudson, Vasquez, uh, and Gorman all die trying to hold the aliens off, and Hicks is injured. Newt gets separated and is taken by the creatures to the compressor station, presumably to become, you know, a vessel for another alien. While Bishop preps the ship, Ripley finds Newt cocooned. Uh, she frees her, and they stumble into the alien queen laying eggs. Ripley pauses for a microsecond and then torches the hive, leaving the mama alien rather upset. Newt and Ripley escape to the surface, pursued by Mama Alien. Bishop picks them up just as the station explodes. The survivors reach the Sulaco, and everyone just lives happily ever after. Oh, wait, nope, nope. Turns out the Mama Alien had hitched a ride in the dropship's landing gear. She literally bisects Bishop, and it starts to go after Newt. Ripley fights her off with a load lifter that we saw earlier in the movie and manages to boot her out of the airlock. After they then close the airlock door, Bishop, Newt, Hicks, and Ripley go to sleep for their journey back to Earth, which I'm just going to assume will be trouble-free. <laughs> um, it's pointless to debate whether Alien or Aliens is the superior film. They're just so different. That's like asking a parent to choose between their children. It's the Sophie's Choice of sci-fi films. Yes or no, do you have an opinion on this? I think it's funny that you, a political science professor, said it's useless to debate something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> touche, touche, <laughs> Because in fact, in point of fact, we are going to debate a little right now. Okay, um, yes, bring it. We could debate whether it's pointless to debate. I will stipulate that there's usually a point to debating, even if it's only to sharpen your own arguments. And... It depends on how you define superior film, right? Like, mm -hmm. I prefer Alien. Right. And I think that there is a stronger argument for it being a perfect film. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we say this a ton in that episode, but it is so economical. Like, it's yeah. just every single thing you see on the screen needs to be there. Every line needs to be said. I do not think that Cameron, although I praised his economy in terms of deleting the scenes, you can't say he's an economical writer. <laughs> like, he's a lot of things and it's, there's some good writing in here, mm -hmm. but it's not an economical film. It is a movie actually. I, I want to stop using the word film because I think Cameron loves movies, right? Yeah. Like one of the things that makes his movies good is that he's like, a, he, he appreciates audience pleasing films, right. right? Like he loves popcorn movies mm -hmm. and he, I think that you see that in this movie, like it's an audience pleasing movie, mm -hmm. right? And that's, by the way, stepping away from my Paladorno, that's fine to make <laughs> audience pleasing films. <laughs> Alien is, is well, it, it was, was very popular and clearly did please audiences. It challenges you a little bit. It is not, you know, obey the tropes mm -hmm. um, of other, it, it invented its own trope by the way, like it, it invented the haunted house in space. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just a little bit of a more, um, again, I don't want to say it's bad to have a movie that's easy to follow and that has like, well, you can cheer for and yeah. you know, all of that. It's not, that's not a bad thing. It's just a different kind of movie. And that's what I was referring to when I talked about Cameron, like having them all read starship troopers and having them do that scene in the mess hall and having him have the drill sergeant. He's like paying, I won't say, it, it, maybe I shouldn't use the word trope. He's playing homage right. to those movies and doing mm -hmm. a good job of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, Aliens is a more fun movie for sure. And I, I, and I don't even want to say which is, I guess the pointless debate for me is which is better. Like right. Aliens is a great movie for the movie it wants to be. Mm -hmm. 
It's a I, 10 out of 10 on the scale of aliens. I guess I would put it this way. So I, I take all of your points and there are ways in which, yes, Alien in particular might have been the more groundbreaking film. There's no, because yeah. as you say, it literally invented tropes. But I would actually argue that Aliens is a more, it, it also established a lot of tropes for the action genre that I don't think necessarily existed before. You're right that in terms of the Marines and in terms of that sort of, you know, uh, those characters, Cameron is heavily borrowing from previous films. But I think what's interesting in retrospect is that the first action scene in this movie doesn't take place until like an hour into it, which I find fascinating. There's really only two moments. Like there, there's the the scene where the the Marines get slaughtered, and then there is the last forty five minutes of the film. Beyond that, there's not actually any action. And so I, the reason I bring this up is that I, this is not just an action film. What Cameron does incredibly well is I do think he builds Ripley's character. And what he does, which is really hard, is take Ripley's character from Alien where she has a sort of icy competence, but not necessarily the chops that you would expect her to display in this film. And credibly, along with Sigourney Weaver, makes it believable that by the end, she is in fact defeating the mother alien in one-on-one -on -one combat. And so in that respect, the and the last 45 minutes of this film, again, just in terms of quality of action, you know, we have complained multiple times on this a podcast about, let's say, Marvel's third act problems, because they are serious third act problems. This movie does not have a third act problem. This movie has a third act strength. And that's actually unusual, I would argue, in a lot of action films. So you're right that, that this is aspiring to be a different film, but it is so good at what it, 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 it achieves everything it aspires to. And I, I just admire the craftsmanship in that respect. A 10 out of 10 for the, for, for what it does, I guess yeah. it, if to use a gymnastics metaphor, I think the level of difficulty for Alien is higher. So uh, see, I, there, no, to disagree. There we're going to have to, to agree disagree. to disagree. I think it can be, I, I, while I recognize that action movies are normally more crowd pleasing, they can be done so badly and this was done so well. And so I, I, I think the degree of difficulty was equally high, but that is where we, well, you can disagree. get to, you can get a high score a lot of different ways. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're both great movies. That's for yeah. sure. Um, I think they both bear rewatching and it is sort of just a matter of like aesthetics. I've almost that, of I which one that you prefer. True. I will concede this point though, which is it might be that alien is aged slightly better. They're both really, Yo, really I good. think that's true. Well, they're if both only for the special effects, alien right? Has, the, has aged the special better. effects in part, all oh, the special effects in aliens are pretty good, but also I was going to say the gender stuff I think yeah. in alien is, is better than it is in aliens, even though it's clearly a, a female action movie. So I, I will concede those right. points. Yeah. And also, I think that it's, I wanted to, we might say more on this later, but I think the griminess is not as well done in Aliens. Like, mm. it's, it may, it may be just because Alien presented, it was such a new idea to have yeah. grimy space. Yeah. But anyway. Okay. Dan, I have a question. Wait. I think the griminess in Alien is actually slightly better. Mm -hmm. eh, might be because it was a newer idea then. I don't know. Okay. Uh, it seems more realistically grimy to me, but who we, who, what can we say is realistically grimy in the future? Who knows? <laughs> Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? I don't know if you've been keeping up on current events, lady, but there's <laughs> IR all over this film. 
Okay, that might be an exaggeration, but there is uh, one of the things watching this film that I was amused by was that I think Aliens uh, actually in some ways is a commentary on my old dissertation advisor, Stephen Krasner's theory about state interventions in weaker countries. Now you asked before, you said colonial Marines, what the hell does that mean? I would assume that colonial Marines in the world of aliens means these are Marines that operate off world and that presumably are conducting operations in places that might very well be considered U.S. colonies or colonies of Earth or whatever the, the government- Or colonies of the Weiland-Yutani Corporation. Exactly, yeah, it might be, yes, the, the you know, the, the equivalent of the Dutch East India Company. Um, now, there is a standard Marxist view and a slightly differential sort of interest group capture theory view of why does the U.S. intervene where it does in the Cold War. So the sort of classic structural Marxist argument or theory is that the U.S. intervenes during the Cold War in the developing world because of corporate pressure. Think the role of the United Fruit Company in Guatemala in 1954, the role of IT&T in Chile in 1973, the role of oil companies in Iran in 1953. This is all premised on the idea that uh, there is the structural dependence of the state on capital. Therefore, the state will adhere to or kowtow even to the wishes of capital. And I don't want to say this argument is completely invalid, but Krasner wrote a book in 1978 called Defending the National Interest, arguing that essentially that there is a state that is autonomous from society, that is in fact not the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, that is not necessarily always held uh, captured by interest groups, and that because the choice of the use of force is in some ways one of the highest roles that the state has to play, chooses to do so premised presumably on the national interest. So this is a slightly different argument. Doesn't they, These two theories can predict the same kinds of intervention, but they're going to be places where they disagree. So which argument does alien support? Actually, a little bit of both. Because on the one hand, in the macro sense, the company does get the Marines to LV4266 to intervene. So presumably, that would be consistent with structural Marxism. The thing is, once there, Hicks winds up making decisions informed by Ripley that are fully consistent with Krasner's status model, that if they had listened to Burke or if they had listened to the company people, they probably would have tried to get the aliens through ICC quarantine. Instead, what they wind up doing is actually blowing things up. So this isn't, you know, the most powerful piece of data. Uh, I was going to say, the other reason they make the decisions they do is because they want to live. You know, yes, like, but again, that yeah, is in some ways I, what I states think, want to do in an anarchical world. They want to survive. So it is consistent with that argument is all I would say. Right. Although it's just a, also a different way of looking at the world, right? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, Burke puts the emphasis on future, you know, profits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ripley and Hicks are like, well, we can't enjoy profits if we're dead, right. you know? <laughs> I guess what I would say to this is that, like, this is where alien... Alien has a culture where the company, you know, like there's that great conversation in Alien between Dallas and Ripley, where Dallas says, we do what the company tells us to do. It's an entirely yeah. defined by, you know, the the sort of uh, the evils of capitalism. As it were. What's interesting about Aliens, I guess, from an IR perspective, is that that capitalism is there. There's no denying that. But the presence of the Marines and the culture that you see from them is a distinct culture that is independent of capitalism. It is. And also, a, yeah, sure. I, I, yes. But also, we don't know what the consequences for the Marines are going to be when they get back. Mm. You know, we have seen that the Wayland you know, yutani Corporation controls everything. And also, there is the question of who the Marines work for, like, really. Right. You know, I mean, 
if if the corporation can say we want marines to come with us mm-hmm. like it d- implies that they have a lot of power when it comes to you know asking the government to do stuff well let me put it this way it's not beyond the realm i mean of if, if 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 you know if some american company was like can we have borrow some marines for this trip we need like that seem would be you know that'd be suspicious <laughs> i'm not so sure that that like leave it this way if let's say an oil company said hey we've got an oil rig out there where there are you know uh we've got 75 people that we can't necessarily get in touch with can you help rescue them then yeah they would send uh, people so but, I, but also again like i think actually the real test is like what happens when they get back that's fair and of course but it doesn't matter on it because they're all going to live happily ever after. They're going to make it, the ship's going to make it back. And I, as far as I'm concerned, this is the end of the aliens uh, franchise. That's a really nice segue to another topic, Dan. <laughs> uh, so, Anna, Dan, did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan, I almost have to. It did occur to me, we were doing our argument, which is a superior film. I mean, obviously, Alien speaks to my little Marxist heart, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. this is a more complicated message, um, and a more realistic one, to be honest, right? Because in yeah. the real world, we don't have either the status or Marxist, you know, theory of power, like we have a combination, like, right. yes, it's a, me- it's know, a messy we, world out there. Yes, exactly. right. We did invade, you know, Guatemala, in part, because the United Fruit Company, but in part, there were other things happening, too. So yeah. anyway, um, and, and I do think it's interesting that the whole franchise remains very working class, almost the entire run until we get to Prometheus, which appears to take place in a post-scarcity economy, like there's no real <laughs> class, um, except for the very rich. There is a very, very rich, I mean, obviously. Yeah. And I guess you could argue that the scientists are, you know, they're technocrats. I mean, I, I think that the Alien series and even the Predator series, right, like are very pro-working class. Well, I mean, I haven't seen this in a long time. No, we're going to have to do about... Predator. I just realized we're we're definitely going to have to do Predator. I was thinking about the the, the siding with the grunts, basically. Yes, like, yes, yes. Anyway, yeah. and it's clear the colonists are victims of capitalism, right? <laughs> yes. The question in this movie, Dan, is are the aliens capitalists? <laughs> okay. So Ripley says no. Right. Mm-hmm. Ripley says to Burke, you know, Burke, explicitly I don't know says which, no. It, yes. She says, you know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Now, that would be clear that that Ripley sees them as the you know communalist communists that they, they might be. It depends on whether or not you think the aliens see humans as fellow sentient creatures or if the aliens are sentient. That's actually a question in the movie, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they're sentient. But do they think? Do they plan? Like there's a little, it's implied a little bit, I think, that they are in fact making plans and using tools. Yeah, I think like, they're sent. They're clearly sentient creatures. They're I mean, sentient. Like, before, but no I, are they? Yeah. Are you know how advanced is their society? Mm. Like, do we think need to think of them as having the same level of civil rights as humans? Right. right? Mm. And do human and do xenomorphs have like a conception of rights, <laughs> a conception of autonomy? Right. If they just see humans as a resource, then maybe mm-hmm. they are sort of communalist communists, right? Like they're just like they they have a big colony. They're more like an ant or, or bees, as um, Hudson kind of tries to make the metaphor himself. Mm-hmm. But I will point out that if they are or they think of themselves as more intelligent and having more rights as humans, 
they are doing a pretty unstable form of capitalism. <laughs> you might call it, Dan, yes. predatory, right? Whoa. <laughs> we really need to like somehow like get Neo saying whoa is like a, like a, a sound effect for all of this. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that from the evidence we're given, I don't think we're supposed to think of them as fellow creatures with rights, obviously. No. Because, because by the way, also, if you do, you have to agree with Burke then. Right, exactly. And you would also like Ripley's nuke them all would be genocide. Yeah. So we, we're supposed to think of them as bugs. So I, I wouldn't, there, there is another way of looking at this, which is you could simultaneously think of them as sentient, but also as things that cannot be as, as creatures that cannot be negotiated with, you know? So in other words, if they are sentient creatures, and they're fully aware of what they're doing, but they do look at humans as simply a vehicle to create more aliens. There is no shame in necessarily deciding we are going to have to kill them because in a zero-sum world where it's either them or us, I vote us, I think, which is, again, a line in the movie. But um, so, so It will be interesting if we ever come across a species that is like that, Dan. Because for sure, there have been times when humans have thought that's what they've come across, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But it hasn't turned out to be the case. And I think we can be hopeful that we will never have to find that out. But that's an interesting okay. question. Um, uh, the last thing I want to say is that I think that the evolution of the mythology of the corporation is sort of interesting. It gets mm -hmm. bigger and sort of more evil, or at least it, it is implied to have more and more power as you go through the series. Yeah. But I... I love how it's portrayed in Alien, which is kind of just amorphously evil and facelessly evil, which I do think is a better critique of capitalism. Possibly. Although, again, I, this is where I do think the Paul Reiser character in this film is in some ways an addition that is unique relative to Alien, but in, in some ways common, uh, commenting on capitalism is nonetheless exquisite. Just, I'm actually yes. amazed that Paul Reiser was able to star in a romantic, you know, in Mad About You after appearing <laughs> in this film. I really am because like, he's so vivid in this. He appears in season two of Stranger Things and his whole thing in season two of Stranger Things is you're not sure because he takes over the sort of evil government lab. You're not sure is he evil or is he not? And I would argue the entire reason that works is because of his role in Aliens. Um, I they totally agree. Consciously yeah. playing off of that. And indeed, I also have to say in, in season two of Stranger Things, they literally have an homage to aliens in those motion detectors where there are dead ringers for the ones that we, we see in this movie. So Stranger yeah. Things might be an interesting text to talk about. Is It is very meta-textual itself. Yes, that is um, You know, it, it, it brings in literal actors, right, to reference other things. So exactly. think of, of other timelines, like, for instance, Winona Ryder. But Dan, you know what? I see something coming at us. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, no. Ah, got, uh, there's stuff everywhere. Bu it is, I think the um, remains of the nuclear reactor, we've entered mm -hmm. the debris field. Okay. This is where we talk about the things we didn't get to talk about earlier. Dan, what do you have? I don't have much. I only have two things really. Um, and they're both <laughs> pieces of dialogue that are used in the film. First, I, you, you actually said xenomorph in the, uh, before. The first time you hear that word, and the only time I think you hear that word in this movie is when Gorman says it when he's addressing the troops. Uh, and it is clear they do not like that word. It, it was another way in which Gorman winds up getting alienated from the, the rest of the platoon, as it were. So again, that's just sort of a subtle way of doing it. And it's a xenomorph is one of those classic 
words that I, a social scientist, would come up with as a way of making it sound fancy, which uh, grunts would not like. Um, and then second, I did like this. I don't know if this was consciously done, but the way that both Hudson and Newt say affirmative, because when you hear Hudson say it for the first time, he again, like uh, accentuates the first uh, syllable. So does Newt. And I kind of like the fact that they you, you sort of think of them on the same maturity plane, as it were, because they were about oh, and, mature. Yeah. And I think Newt is consciously aping him. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. I also do think all of Newt's best lines are when she's doing some kind of like mocking version of an adult. Right. <laughs> like, but also and I would close with this again. Part, a credit to the script, there are a lot of small characters like Hudson and Gorman that have just very small arcs in this film, but they're all incredibly well handled. I mean, Hudson, I don't know how much screen time Bill Paxton has. It's not a ton, but he he's just alive throughout the entire movie and has more, you know, taglines in this film than like anything possible. It's just incredible. And I appreciate that they made the ninny in, in this movie a man. You know, we, we've, yes. ta we've talked about you know it, the ninny and the and alien is kind of is a woman and that's not great for me it's another trope though like he turns out to be all bluster right like then he just but although again this is his great arc which is mm -hmm. so he goes from being the tough guy right all bluster to being to shitting his pants right but um, then to becoming brave again and, and having a heroic uh, death yeah and having a heroic death right yeah yeah and yeah Oh, just one little thing, which is, again, it also shows the way Ripley can actually command men is the way that Ripley gets Hudson off of his freak, off of his like anxiety and says, look, this is what we need. You're going to do this. And the way Hudson responds to that. And again, it, it shows how Sigourney Weaver also raises the acting of those with her. And it is a useful way to deal with um, in the moment trauma, I would yeah. add. But if you look at the, the actual thing you have to do. Right. rather than the context. Um, it can be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, so I have a few things to say. One is uh, related to, to Riser being so uh, slimy and bad, which is he's dressed like a tech bro. <laughs> like <laughs> he might as well be wearing a Patagonia vest, right? But it's a tech like, bro with the 80s thing. I love the jackets with the collars up, the, the, right, like, right, right. the suit jacket with the collar up. That's the, I mean, I'm actually surprised no one's copied that. But, so yeah. it's a timeless look, it turns out, right? So, <laughs> and the other thing is, is when he says, I can't authorize that kind of action about the, them wanting to nuke the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's must be a political science term for this, but it's like you and what army, bro? Like, <laughs> he, 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 they're the ones with the guns. Right. <laughs> like, the Marines are the ones who are going to be making decisions. Yeah. Right. Like, I just think that I just, I don't know. I mean, and they, maybe it says something again about the power of the Wayland. Utani Corporation, that they actually do seem to have some kind of like, well, maybe they, they do see it as resistance to disobey yeah. that order. I think um, it is consistent with the sort of casual arrogance that he has. And then, so in yeah, that sense, right. yeah, that's fair. True. And then some really small things. I think that tank that Ripley drives shouldn't have a glass window. Because <laughs> that has been a long time since I've seen a tank in person, Dan, but my understanding is these days they do not have windows. Like, <laughs> no, no, they don't. Yeah. That's a very weak point in the structure and in fact the aliens do take advantage of it uh, another thing the xenomorphs have what seems to me an inefficient reproductive cycle would you say yeah <laughs> well it's like i mean i guess how, well is it really any different from a butterfly 
Anna. I mean, you know, there, there are first the eggs that are laid, then they become caterpillars, then they cocoon themselves again, and then they become beautiful butterflies. I'm interested in what kind of ecological niche the face huggers, you know, yeah. uh, occupy, but, but you know, whatever, very small. Yeah. Um, I still on the fence about Newt. I think I would like her more if her Newt scream would somehow be a weapon against the aliens. Cause it's that incredibly high pitched tone that immediately makes my, you know, nerves like stand on end. It's a good uh, screen though. But it yeah. is a good screen. And then I, I guess I'll just repeat. I think it's a little unclear just how smart the aliens are. And mm. maybe that it adds to the tension. Yeah. But, but it is a question. And it also, I guess it probably never gets really resolved. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, I guess yeah. that's also for the good of the plot that we never really know exactly how smart they are. Right. Right. Okay. Dan, uh, let's leave space and go to the pitch. This Excellent awesome. idea. It is now time to talk about Ted Lasso. I believe it's episode 11 yep. uh, of season two. Uh, Anna? The, the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. The penultimate episode. Indeed, the penultimate episode. So we only have one more of these to do for this season. Uh, we know there will at least be one more season. But Anna, why don't you uh, start by telling us what happened in this episode? A very abbreviated form, but still kind of spoilery um, if you haven't seen it. There are three main plots in this episode. There is the continuation of the Rebecca and Sam story, uh, complicated by the emergence of a Ghanaian billionaire who doesn't just want to buy the team, or actually he doesn't want to buy the team. Mm-hmm. He wants to purchase... Sam. Oh boy, I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> yes, um... it's always get awkward this way. He wants to purchase the contract of Sam. He wants yeah. to purchase Sam's contract. He wants to purchase um, Sam's it's... skills. He wants to hire Sam. Yes, he wants to hire Sam. And it, is, it makes, I think, a compelling argument for Sam to return to Africa and play mm-hmm. for an African team. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a B plot, which is not a duet, but a quartet. It is Keeley and Roy and Nate and Mrs. Bowen, where Roy gives a long conversation with Mrs. Bowen. And I guess I should say Keeley and Nate and Jamie, actually, because mm-hmm. he's the other person sort of shadowing that relationship right now. Right. Roy finds himself attracted to Mrs. Bowen and who wouldn't be, or I should say Ms. Bowen, mm-hmm. uh, who wouldn't be. She's a, she's a great character. Keeley gets kissed by Nate, which... I will talk about later. Um, <laughs> problematic, I will say. And also, of course, we learned in the last episode that uh, Jamie still loved Keely. Uh, the C plot is Ted and Sharon and Ted's difficulty with both boundaries and saying goodbye. Mm. What did you like about this episode, Dan? I liked a few things about this episode. First, I love the line from Keely. It's just an honor to be mad, fit, and successful. Uh, you know, fair enough. Same. Y- yeah. the team dynamics i I, one of the things i've legitimately loved this season is seeing afc richmond as a team interacting with each other um and so as they are practicing the choreography to say goodbye to sharon they get all very excited because they've finally managed to do bye 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 correctly and coach beard approves and they all like you know uh, enjoy it so i just that was nice to see i did like keely's impersonation of roy that was that was quite interesting um I have to say, for a show about an American in England, there are surprisingly few sort of standard American critiques of of the UK, as it were. What I did like was Ted reading Sharon's letter and then saying, you spelled favorite wrong. That is a classic Americanism. I don't care. I'm enough of an American to actually, you know, and I think it was done in a knowing, winking way. And I thought that was that was really well. I'm now almost reluctant to say this, but I actually did like the way Keeley handled Nate's kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm suspecting you didn't like that. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. 
The two things I most seriously did not like one little bit. First, I didn't like Keeley's outfit for the photo shoot. The metal collar in particular is not something I'm crazy about. It didn't work for me. But the other thing, which I suspect you even disliked more than I did as someone who has actually been paid to be a reporter, Anna, Trent Krim, this, this episode ends with, you know, a blockbuster story written by Trent Krim of The Independent saying that uh, Ted had actually suffered a panic attack earlier in the season, which he had admitted to, but the cover story had been that he suffered indigestion. Trent Krim texts Ted to inform him that the source was Nate. And I don't understand (laughs) that in the slightest and just seems like a violation of all sorts of different journalistic ethics and uh, just what the fuck is basically my reaction to that Um, story. Maybe I should lead with what I didn't like. Yeah, Um, that's a good idea. Fair enough. Yes, Because, yeah, I mean, and... uh, folks i texted dan after i finished the episode to complain <laughs> about that specific scene in addition to trent cram doing that story without going to ted for quote right like, oh that's yes that would never yes. happen i mean it just no even in a, even and, and happens, by the way but like but even in the di- british press <laughs> yes and also by the way it's it's the independent the independent would is, is a broadsheet it would presumably at least seek a quote from the source or seek a quote from AFC Richmond. That would of course happen. Oh yeah. One of, yes, exactly. Yeah. And also writing out the source immediately is just, <laughs> uh, he, he also, he is presented as a good journalist like Trent Prem is. So like very not good journalist to yeah. do that. And yes. you know what you can do if you're a journalist and someone comes to you with something like this, you can say, I don't think that's a story. Mm-hmm. Like that is a perfectly like, you know, within the bounds of, of journalistic ethics, yeah. because there is an argument that that is not a story <laughs> that whatever it is that happened with Ted yeah. is not something that this particular news outlet wants to give a platform to. I hadn't thought about this, but this is also an issue. It's, I guess it's the question of Nate clearly intentionally leaked this. Yes. What was Nate thinking going to Trent Krim as opposed to yeah. an oh, actual yeah, tabloid? You would go to the tabloid because yeah. the tabloid would run with it no matter what. And, if, you know, and there's no way a tabloid reporter would rat to Ted, I would add. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, moving on. Um, I think this, in general, this season just hasn't dealt with stakes or consistency very well. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's it's done a lot of sort of what I think of a standard sitcom shortcuts. And mm-hmm. that is disappointing. Mm-hmm. As for Keely and Nate's Chris. OK, let's hear it. Okay, Anna. Things like that can happen between friends. And if you look at it that way, then the way Keely quote unquote handled it, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, if she still considers Nate a friend. Right. I might not, I would like to think I would handle it differently, actually. Like, I think what I want to say is I think Keely, that's the way women are socialized to handle that kind of thing. Hmm. be very understanding oh don't worry it's not a problem doesn't Mm -hmm. bother me we'll just go on like nothing happened Mm -hmm. but i think um i've had the experience i bet a lot of women had it is that is very difficult to undo Hmm. as an experience Mm -hmm. and in fact this is an episode in which keely is trying to come to terms with the fact that she's respected for her mind and not her body Right. And not her attractiveness. That's mm-hmm. explicitly mentioned in this episode. Mm-hmm. Right. To have a male coworker come on to you is really destabilizing, Dan, in terms of thinking what you're valued for. Mm-hmm. Like it could even not be intentional, 
but women are told over and over that the reason we that you know our, our physical appearance is the way that we are judged. Mm-hmm. And so to have that happen is a destabilizing act, right? Yes, like it, totally it would make you rethink like, well, what position do I have in this you know, community? Like, why am I valued by this community? Is it my sexual attractiveness or is it like what I bring to it? Mm-hmm. That's just, I'm just saying like, I don't. No, no, I, I'm sorry. For you. <laughs> Listeners to this podcast can't see my facial expressions and I'm pondering uh, on his points. And I, I, it's not that I disagree with them. It's that it might be that because this is from Nate and not, someone else that who's behaving like a real asshole lately yes oh oh yes so that's another reason why i don't like it is like you if you see this as good nate giving her a kiss that's one thing but it's bad nate that does this i agree that it's bad nate i think part of the reason i guess the way i would put it is one of the interesting elements of this and i'm honestly interested in your thoughts on this is that it's not clear to me that keely think there's no the power dynamic is the thing that's i'm trying to suss out in other words if I, I know this is wildly implausible, if Higgins had done this, then there's no denying it, that it would have been horrific for a variety of as things. As far as I know, Keeley's a contractor to the team, which but doesn't I'm, make it any better. I guess. I guess the point is, is that I think Keeley, this way, I, I guess the way I would say it is understandable that Keeley reacts the way she does, in part, as you say, because women are conditioned to react this way. But I think it also might be that Keeley views Nate as unthreatening which might be incorrect or might be Any, oh, it, Yes or no. I mean, it almost doesn't matter because yeah. that can be true and it can be enormously destabilizing and um, fill you with self-doubt. Okay. That's an interesting point, which I would have this happen. That's fair. And I, I, I guess that was the question I was asking, which is in other words, in Nate, because it's Nate doing this as opposed to someone else, I wasn't sure it would be as destabilizing, I guess. Would be well, power would make it worse, but like, yeah. there's a reason why, you know, people just don't write off cat calls. Yeah, like, the enough. people that cat call women, like have no power over women in a real right. way, mm-hmm. but it, it tells you where you are in society. Like it's okay. a reminder that this is how men judge you. Yeah. Okay, so, no, no, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Did not like. Still really don't like Rebecca and Sam. <laughs> <laughs> also, the billionaire who thinks billionaires shouldn't exist sure spends his money in some needlessly extravagant ways. <laughs> Seems to spend it laughing like a billionaire. I mean, all he's missing really on is the penis rocket that he's going to launch after, you know, this is over. Yeah, I, I mean, he says explicitly, I don't, I'm a billionaire. He thinks a billionaire shouldn't exist. And then it turns out he's hired the whole museum. Like, I don't right. know. Like, I feel like, you know, go give that money away somewhere. Like, it's not, maybe having your private security team with you would be a better solution than hiring out the museum. Um, although you could see him as a job creator, I guess. I did like some things. Good. Ms. Bowen steals every scene she is in, again. Uh, there are some great musical cues uh, also, including In Sync. And I, well, I guess we don't actually hear the In Sync song. I really thought we were going to see that routine. Every time we got mm. we cut to Ted and Sharon, I was like, he's going to find a way to get the team like <laughs> at the pub. He's going to find a way to get the team like in the street. He's going to mm. find, I just was in a way that is a, a subversion of a sitcom trope that they haven't been doing lately. So it was kind of nice to have them not give us that. Although mm-hmm. I wonder if it'll come back because who doesn't want to see that? Who doesn't <laughs> want to see the team do the in-sync routine? And then I really loved the interaction between Roy and Keeley when they sort of make their confessions to each other. Right. And that's some just very 
subtle acting. And also, I don't know if you thought of this, Dan, but I did. When they turn back to look at the camera, Mm -hmm. yes, not only is it the most uncomfortable, like, you know, two people dating picture ever, but it felt exactly like The Graduate. And I wonder if it was an intentional reference. Oh, that's interesting. I I hadn't made that connection. I will say what I remember thinking at the end of that was that Ted Lasso rarely goes to that space emotionally and it did it did so very effectively there I think um so in that sense yeah yeah well done I I would add one other thing that I like I just realized which is just overall I am actually impressed with what they've done with the character of Sharon in second season I was worried about her at the very beginning and I think on the whole and you've said this before and I think it's a good way of thinking about it Sharon is set up as a professional in a very different way than Ted Lasso but it is also a very important way that you can be a professional and so in that sense it's really well done yeah yes I agree what did we learn Dan I will jump in I will okay say what I learned go ahead sometimes letters are better for saying <laughs> goodbye uh, as a writer person who hates saying goodbye I believe this I just think it's true and I think that Ted refusing to read that letter is a character defect on his part. Yes, agreed. And him kind of pursuing her is um, borderline, like, it's, I don't know what quite what the word to use is. It's rude, for mm-hmm. sure. Like, it's it's not, and it, it also- Transgressive. Transgressive, yes. He's crossing a boundary. Yeah. I thought this season we actually were getting, intentionally or unintentionally, kind of some interesting sort of commentary on Ted's lack of boundaries mm-hmm. and how that maybe isn't great. Mm-hmm. But it seems like maybe that's just accidental and we're supposed to like be with Ted on all his boundary crossing, mm-hmm. no matter what. Also, we learned that Sam drives a Tesla, <laughs> uh, which living in Austin, I have sort of mixed feelings about what that says about his character. Mm-hmm. And also sometimes cash is a perfectly fine gift. You can sometimes <laughs> just give people cash. I am not insulted. I am not insulted when people give me cash or gifts or tickets or whatever. Like sometimes that really is the best thing. Writing that one down. I just want to know, there is a curious lack of dads in this episode, except for the dead dad of the Ghanaian billionaire. Mm. Not a lot of dad talk. Oh, of course. And the absent dad for Ted. Yes. And you know, one of the reasons he's so uh, terrible with the guys, but Dan, what did you learn? I learned uh, a few things. First of all, I hate this trope. Always close your goddamn laptop before you start another conversation. <laughs> For the love of God, it's not hard, people. You just close it. You don't like narrow it down a little bit. You actually make sure it's closed. Apparently, you don't should not trust people with tight crotches. I was not aware of this, but they, do they mean tight crotches? They mean the clothes that are tight on the crotch, right? They don't mean like no, they don't mean no. They're talking yes. about clothes. Close. Yes, 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 exactly. Tight in the crotch I'm, area. I'm sorry. Don't trust people wearing clothes that are tight in the crotch area. That yeah, those just tight. Want to be explicit? No, that's a good point. That yes, uh, yeah. yes, that's true. I learned that, and we just said this, but still, that folks at Ted Lasso do not understand reporting as a profession, because uh, right. again, really a bad, a bad thing. And finally, I learned that I too am Banksy. Uh, <laughs> because apparently Banksy could be anyone. And I did. I like that. That was an amusing. That was away. a good joke. That, that was, was a good a joke. The idea. Good joke. Uh, yes. um, also the reference to, I will destroy you. When Sam says, I thought I recognized that guy from, I will destroy you. That was a fun, like <laughs> fun bit of pop culture there. Yes. Uh, yes. All right. Well, Dan, we're done with Ted Lasso uh, episode 11, almost maybe done with Ted Lasso in general. Uh, we have to reconvene about whether or not we'll do recaps of the next season. Mm-hmm. We might do something else instead. Uh, we, I have enjoyed talking about Ted Lasso. I've less enjoyed watching Ted Lasso this season. <laughs> Fair enough. 
But I will enjoy the things we have upcoming uh, mm-hmm. to remind folks. Uh, Event Horizon, Dune, more Alien at some point. And also, I would like to remind everyone the Expanse returns in December. Yay! And we will revert back to be an Expanse recap show. That is what that, people that, listening remember, but that is how this podcast started. That, that is our origin it. story, and we are not <laughs> we are not going to leave that origin end story. Is a, a recap show, but we are not we're, reti- t- we're not retconning this podcast. That is the origin story that will remain the origin story. Right. But Dan, until then, keep this channel open for more. <laughs>